In U.S. working forests, or forest land carefully managed to provide a steady renewable supply of wood for daily use, more than 1 billion trees are planted every year, and forestry experts protect and manage hundreds of millions of acres. Working forests have been sustainably managed for decades. How? It's simple. They plant more trees than they harvest. Learn more at workingforestsinitiative.com. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com. The Supreme Court is starting a new term this week, and conveniently, Vox.com has a new Supreme Court correspondent on staff, Ian Milheiser. He's a great guy. I worked with him years and years ago. I'm so glad to be working with him again and was really excited to sit down and record an episode with him about the Supreme Court's new term and, and more broadly sort of how to think about judicial issues. I think you're really going to like this one. Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias. I'm joined today by Ian Milheiser. He is a, a new senior correspondent here at Vox.com, uh, an old colleague of mine uh, from Think Progress long ago. R.I.P. R.I.P., yes. I, um, and a, a, a wise voice on questions related to the judiciary and uh, related matters. The Supreme Court is a... Uh, gearing up for a new term. And I, I really wanted, Ian, come on, tell us, like, what's what's on the agenda? What what can we expect? Oh, boy. So, Good stuff, right? Yeah, so here's the thing. I, I mean, the news that's going on in the background is every time you open up the paper, there's a new bombshell about Donald Trump. And people ask themselves, why were Republicans willing to let this guy be president? Mm-hmm. And this term is the answer. Mm-hmm. You, you know, we, we have a case that's probably going to severely undercut abortion rights. We've got the biggest employment discrimination case probably in the last 30 years, a big guns case that could massively expand the Second Amendment. Um, we've got DACA and another huge immigration case um, that literally deals with whether a border guard can get away with shooting someone across the Mexican border. And so, like, the amount of policy change we're likely to see over the course of this term is going to be extraordinary. And so much of it is on issues that are the core issues that Republican constituencies care so much about. Right. So, I mean, abortion is obviously, like, the right. obvious one. This is famous. We argue about this all the time. Uh, Justice Kennedy had been uh, sympathetic to abortion rights plaintiffs in many cases. Um, I think the great fear slash hope was that replacing him with a more orthodox conservative right. will produce a flip on on that. But can you tell us like what what does the case say? Because I think a big a big dispute in the in the hot take zone right. has been like will the Supreme Court say Roe v. Wade was wrongly decided and there is no 
right to privacy or right to privacy doesn't extend to abortion. Yes. Does, does this touch on that? No, it's a real good question. I mean, it's possible that the Supreme Court will never actually write the words Roe v. Wade is overruled. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't mean that there's still going to be a right to an abortion. So this case involves what a lot of abortion advocates call trap laws, which are just laws that don't really do anything except make it really, really hard to operate an abortion clinic. This particular law requires um, abortion providers in Louisiana to obtain admitting privileges at a nearby hospital Mm -hmm. if if they want to perform an abortion. Um, That might sound familiar to you. The reason it might sound familiar to you is because the Supreme Court struck down a Texas law that did the exact same thing just three years ago. Mm -hmm. So like the decision to replace Kennedy with Kavanaugh has really is really going to matter here. Um, But the point of this is you don't have to actually strike down Roe v. Wade in order to eliminate the right to an abortion. If states can enact these so-called trap laws, you know, theoretically, a state could say, "Okay, you can have all the abortion clinics you want, but they have to be built out of solid gold. You you know, like you you can put in place restrictions that make it so expensive to operate a clinic that they all wind up shutting down. Right, right. So that's sort of like one one possible outcome here. It seems like a likely one like this. This is these laws. Laws are designed to not explicitly raise that sort of core question, right? Right. Although, I mean, there's actually a really interesting debate amongst abortion opponents about whether the right strategy is to go hard mm-hmm. after Roe. You know, part of the reason they passed these trap laws is because when Justice Kennedy was the, the key vote, right. like Kennedy kind of surprised people. He surprised me when he struck down the, te- the Texas law because Kennedy's pattern up to that point is that he upheld virtually every anti-abortion law that came before him. He just, you know, wouldn't say Roe v. Wade is overruled. Mm -hmm. So, like, the theory behind these laws was, well, let's see how far Kennedy's willing to go with this theory. And it turns out not that far. So I'm going to throw out a bold prediction here because I know most legal analysts disagree with me. Uh, But I think that conservatives think that Roe v. Wade is really bad. Not just like wrongly decided, but like one of the great moral scandals of all time. And so I think that if they uh, uphold these laws, um, you know, that I, I think that either there'll be like a shocking surprise right. and like Kavanaugh turns out to be pro-choice or else they will loud and proud say we are ridding the Constitution of this stain. Yeah. I don't think we're going to see some like clever John Roberts politicking of this, that like people, you know, people who conservatives who have views about like the authority of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau are like, that's like lawyerly stuff. But like abortion, it's an emotional issue. And I I expect emotional ruling if they go against it. No, I think the internal dynamics within the Republican majority of the court Mm -hmm. could matter a lot here. So like if you look at people like Thomas or Gorsuch, like their opinions basically say, I want it all and I want it now, 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 now. And like Roberts and Alito and during his short time on the bench, Kavanaugh have shown some ability to be more strategic Mm -hmm. and to think about what's the next incremental victory they want to get. The danger is that abortion is such a big deal for these folks that maybe Roberts wants to do something incremental and strategic and Gorsuch writes the now, 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 now opinion. And then, you know, if Roberts loses everyone else and so now he's writing a sole opinion. Is, you know, he may just fall in line. That's actually what happened in Citizens United is Roberts actually wrote a narrow Citizens United opinion and he lost his majority and said, "Okay, well, I guess I'll go along with the whole thing then. Right. So, okay. so so what else do we have here? You said there's there's a gun case. 
Yeah. So this is a case out of New York. Um, and I should point out that the gun advocates or the, the gun control advocates want this thing to be to go away so badly that New York City got rid of the regulation that's at issue. And New York State passed a law saying you can never, ever do that again, New York City, because they want the case to be declared moot and, okay. and thrown out. The X law at issue um, it's really small potatoes, actually. So there are two different types of gun licenses you can get in New York City. If you get the less permissive, the easier to get license, then you are only allowed to have a gun in your home and you're allowed to bring it to seven different shooting ranges to practice shooting. And some of these plaintiffs want to bring it to different shooting ranges and that's it. Uh -huh. One of them has two homes and he wants to be able to take his guns in between the two houses uh -huh. and that's it. So really small potato stuff here. But the reason why it matters so much is that Kennedy, like Justice Stevens, shortly before he died, um, retired Justice Stevens, disclosed that Kennedy, when the Supreme Court handed down its landmark Second Amendment decision, 2008, the Heller decision, Kennedy had sort of prevailed on the, his, the other Republicans to be like, hey, can we water this down a little? Mm -hmm. you, you know, can we say that like maybe like felons and the mental ill shouldn't have guns, you know, maybe um, dangerous and unusual weapons is mm -hmm. the um, term. And Kennedy's not there anymore to order these things down. Right. And so the fear is that if the Supreme Court takes up any Second Amendment case, they right. can use it as the vehicle to massively expand the, the Second Amendment, even if it's sort of a small potatoes regulation. So this has sort of been going like legally, this is like the opposite of where the abortion jurisprudence has been going, right? Where like currently the Supreme Court says there is an individual right to right. own guns in the Second Amendment. But in a practical sense, ju like jurisdictions that really don't like people having guns still have a lot of scope right. to, to regulate that and what it means. And like in practice, you, we live in, uh, right. I live in DC at least. It, it's like, you, you still can't really get a gun here. Right. Like notwithstanding Heller, um, there are no gun stores, right. for example. Um, and, you know, but you could say, no, like we're going to make this like a like a real right, right where there's almost no restriction yeah. on, on what you can do. So the Supreme Court decided Heller in 2008, mm -hmm. which was the first decision ever to say there's an individual right under the Second Amendment to own a firearm. And they've basically done nothing else since then. I mean, there was one case saying that, oh, yeah, Heller applies to the states, too. But since 2008, they just haven't fleshed it out at all. The lower courts, however, have like formed a pretty clear consensus. And that clear consensus is if something is in the core of the Second Amendment, which is like self-defense in the home right. um, and like, you know, basic stuff like that, then like we're probably going to strike down anything that it, that's an incursion on that. But the further you, you get away from the core, the more likely it is to be upheld. And in practice, lots of things are getting upheld. Kavanaugh, as a lower court judge, wrote a dissenting opinion where he disagreed with that whole framework. Mm -hmm. And so like that's a big reason why the stakes are so big here is because basically since Heller, there's been this framework that the lower courts have been applying that's fairly permissive of gun control. And the danger is that the um, the new majority is going to throw all of that out and put in place something that is much more favorable to the NRA. Right. So, okay. So those are kind of like the the hot button right. cultural issues. I think this is a lot of what people think about when they think about the Supreme Court. Uh, but there's also a lot of like economic policy right. stuff uh, landing, landing up there. Uh, you mentioned an employment law case. Yeah. Uh, 
anything else or should we go deeper on that one? So, I mean, I, I'd like to go really deep with yeah. it with this employment discrimination case because there's a ton of layers to it. So there's, there's actually three cases, um, two involving gay men who claim they were fired because they're gay and one involving a trans woman who was fired because she's trans. Um, and the question is whether you can fire someone because of their sexual orientation or their gender identity. OK. But there's so many layers to this because sure. so below that, there's an entire doctrine going back to the 1980s saying that you can't engage in sex stereotyping. So like a boss can't say to a female employee, you know, I think you're too mannish or, you know, you dress too much like a man. You act too much like a man. And that's based on Civil Rights Act. Yes. Or, so it's not a, it's not a constitutional claim. That's correct. So right. all of this goes back to Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of, of 1964, which forbids discrimination. The specific words are because of sex. Right. And those – and, of course, sex in this context means gender and not sexual intercourse. Sure. Um, so those are really expansive words. Like if you think about sex at all when you're trying to decide why you're firing someone, it's not allowed. Like if sex played into your decision-making, that's because of sex. Right. And so part of what makes these cases really interesting is that it's a real test of the conservative justices who claim that the law begins and ends with the text and mm -hmm. you, you don't look at anything else. Um, you know, I don't know that anyone thinks that in 1964, when Congress passed this law, they that they're what they had in their heads was this is great. We're going to ban discrimination against gay people and trans people. Sure. You, you know, the, the federal government banned hiring gay employees. OK, and, so we're yeah. saying, OK, so we're, yeah. we're talking. OK, the, this yeah. is like abstract legal theory. Right? right. And so like one view is something about intentionality and like originalism. And it's pretty clear. Right. If you look at like what was happening when the civil rights Act passed, that there was not a explicit intention to be advancing LGBT rights claims. That's exactly right. In, in that, right? right? Like that's that's not what they were doing. Right. Uh, but then like a different view is that look, like the text has meaning. Right. Right. Like this is uh I, I was a philosophy major at se semantic externalism right. is called, right? Um, words mean things. Uh, if you say I'm banning discrimination on the basis of sex, well, then discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation is a kind of discrimination right. on the basis of sex because you're saying, well, if a woman did that, I wouldn't have a problem right. with it. But because the person doing it is a man, that makes him a gay man. Right. And now I'm not OK with it. Right. So like think about like if, if your boss said to you that men are allowed to eat pizza in the office, but women aren't right. like that's sex discrimination. Right. And so if your boss says men are allowed to be attracted to women, but women aren't. Also sex discrimination. Right. right. So, yeah, as a textual matter, these cases are pretty clear cut. And so part of what makes them so interesting is that you've got all, you know, Justice Thomas, Justice Gorsuch, these really conservative guys who said that everything has to begin and end in the text. Mm -hmm. And so we're going to find out now whether they believe that when it hurts. <laughs> but so but didn't we already find out a lot about this during the uh, like same sex marriage litigation? Right. right? I mean, that that was not the. Obviously, the plaintiffs right. in that case ultimately prevailed, but that wasn't the legal theory right. that they 
prevailed with. Well, so textually, I think these cases are very different. Uh-huh. So like because of sex, you know, the specific language at issue in Title VII is really expansive. Right. So with the 14th Amendment, the 14th Amendment says that no one shall be denied the equal protection of the laws. Uh-huh. I don't think anyone thinks that that should be taken literally because if you if you read that literally, it would mean government can't discriminate at all. Like you couldn't discriminate b- between qualified and unqualified right, you, job you, you applicants. You couldn't draw any kind of distinction. Exactly. Right? And and so the, the government has to, you know, it has to, it can lock away murderers and not non-murderers, sure. for example. The government has to be able to discriminate in some sense. So the question is, what kind of discrimination isn't allowed? Right. And the way that the court has sort of fleshed that out is they've said, well, we know what the 14th Amendment was really after was race discrimination. But we also know that it uses this more expansive language. And so discrimination that is similar in character to race discrimination um, is not allowed. You know, sexism is not allowed. Uh Um, And so for a lot of liberals, you know, liberals say, well, look, homophobia is sufficiently similar in character to racism. You know, it's the same kind of irrational discrimination that's not rooted in someone's worth as a person um, that the Constitution should protect against. And conservatives disagree with that. Um, But, you know, the, the overarching point is, it's like, the marriage equality cases were actually hard cases about values, about like, you know, uh-huh. whether you feel that discriminating against someone on the basis of sexual orientation is as bad as the other things that are already prohibited. This case is about the text. You know, uh-huh. the, the, you know the, 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 the Title VII cases are about whether when the wall says because of sex, it means because of sex unless you're gay or trans. Mm-hmm. So what 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 other layers do we have here? You you said there were many. Yeah. So the the other layer is that so going back to our conversation about how there's this tension between the way the law was originally understood and you know now what the text says. There's lots of doctrines that the court has created that weren't in the minds of people in sure. 1964. You know, I, I mentioned there's the sex stereotyping doctrine, sexual harassment. I, I mean, like the concept of sexual harassment, you know, a lot of scholars say that the term was coined in 1973 by a woman at MIT. Um, it was sort of popularized by Catherine McKinnon in a, in a 1979 uh-huh. book. Um, but the point is, like, it wasn't really. I mean, you can watch Mad Men. Like this, this wasn't a term. Sure. This wasn't a concept that was really on people's minds in 1964. And so, if the Supreme Court winds up saying, like, "Hey, we're not going to follow the text when it leads to these outcomes that wasn't what Congress really had in mind," that could go back and unravel a ton of existing civil rights law, okay. including protections against sexual harassment. But that does sound like a case. I mean, I'll take the opposite side of right. what I was saying about the abortion case. That sounds like an area where I think what we know about Justice Roberts's mm-hmm. tendency toward caution right. and several of the other conservative justices as well, that it seems like we're, they would probably want to rule against LGBT plaintiffs in a way that doesn't like – create a hue and cry about yeah. existing stuff, right? I, I think that's right. I mean, they might. Yeah. You never know. No, I think that's right. I, you know, I think it's very unlikely that uh-huh. we're going to get an opinion that says, you can't just, yes, you can fire people for being gay and you can fire people for being trans. And also here are seven precedents that are overruled. Right. right? Like, I don't see that happening. But like, law is an iterative process. Exactly. Like, I mean, if you, you know, going back to abortion, like, it's not, you know, Roe is 
lots of Roe has already been dismantled. Right. Like, there's Planned Parenthood v. Casey in 1992 that severely weakened Roe. There's been lots of cases watering down Roe. And so when they eventually write the decision, if they write the decision overruling Roe, what they're going to say is, well, this doctrine just isn't robust anymore. Yeah. Look at how many incursions they've been on it. And so the same thing can happen here where when you start introducing new principles into the law that don't cohere with old principles, it weakens the old principles. Right. And eventually those can be dismantled as well. All right. I think we should take a break here and get get into the, the rest of what we have in store. All right. Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. Opinions are plastered all over social media. Pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context. And it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot-button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. In U.S. working forests, or forest land carefully managed to provide a steady renewable supply of wood for daily use, more than one billion trees are planted every year, and forestry experts protect and manage hundreds of millions of acres. Working forests have been sustainably managed for decades. How? It's simple. They plant more trees than they harvest. Learn more at workingforestsinitiative.com. Okay, so one kind of shocking case here that I had not actually heard a lot about until we were we were talking uh, the other day is this this border patrol shooting. Right. What what happened? So this is called Hernandez v. Mesa. Um, the facts are appalling. Um, so there were a group of Mexican children who were playing at the U.S.-Mexico border. And, you know, the, the government and the family of one of these children disagree about the specific facts of what happened. But at some point, a border guard drew his gun, fired two shots across the Mexican border. One of them hit a 15-year-old boy, um, Sergio Hernandez, in the head and killed him. Okay. Um, and the family is now suing the guard, the, the, the border patrol agent, um, saying that they should be able to collect money from him. Mm-hmm. for killing their child. From him as opposed to... From the from, government. Okay. Right. Um, and so all of this comes goes back to a 1971 decision called Bivens. Okay. Um, and Bivens basically implements the Spider-Man rule for federal officials. You know, with great power comes great responsibility. The theory behind Bivens is that federal officials, they're given the sovereign power of the state. I mean, many of them are given guns. And if you give someone that awesome power, like there has to be a check on that. Like they have to know there will be a consequence if you violate the Constitution, if you use that power in a horrible way. And so it allows federal officials to be sued directly when they violate the Constitution. 
Um, Bivens has not fared well since the 1970s. The court's gotten a lot more conservative. And what the lower court said in this Hernandez case is it said, no, 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 no. We don't want to think about the Spider-Man rule. The issue here is that these Border Patrol guards are doing really important national security work. You know, they're keeping people out of the country that we don't want in the country. And like that work is hard and like you have to make split second decisions. And if you hesitate, like you don't want someone to hesitate because they think they could be sued. And so we want to protect these people doing important national security work by not making uh-huh. them subject to lawsuits. So is the is the 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 legal theory here that this is different because it's because the Border Patrol is doing national security work? Because, um, I mean, I know right. that's like that's sometimes a. A, right. A, 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 it's national security, so it's different is like sometimes yeah. a, a line of argument. Yeah. So if you get into the doctrine, like what the courts have said is that technically Bivens is still good law, but there are special circumstances which can justify departing from the Bivens rule. And a national security justification is one of those special circumstances. But really, there's a lot of special circumstances. Uh-huh. I mean, what's actually going on here is that there was a liberal majority when Bivens was decided, sure. and there's a conservative majority for most of the history since then. And so they've just been finding ways to get around Bivens. Right. So this would essentially, what, like immunize Border Patrol from, like, misconduct and brutality claims? I mean, what what, what are we talking about here? Exactly? I mean, it, it would potentially immunize them from constitutional claims. So like okay. if they violate, I mean, in this case, it would be a Fourth Amendment claim or a Fifth Amendment claim that someone was denied life without due process. They were seized uh-huh. um, unreasonably. But I mean, th- that has huge implications and it has huge implications, not just for the border. Uh-huh. You, you know, I mean, think about what's going on with ICE agents right now. Uh-huh. You, you know, you know if, if an ICE agent brutalizes an immigrant in a way that violates the Constitution. You know, this could potentially, you know, you could see the same logic. Well, you know, these are people we don't want in the country. It's important for national security that people are enforcing our laws. And, right. you know, so Bivens should not apply in that case either. It's a tough one. <laughs> yeah. And like the, the reason I bring this up, because I mean, there's a lot, I mean, there's a huge DACA case. There's a lot of really like sure. sexy, high profile cases this term. But this one just strikes me because it's just so clearly about what our values are, what the Supreme Court's values are. Uh-huh. Well, like the, there's, the text of the Constitution is silent on like whether or not in these types of individual lawsuits are allowed. Like the reason why Bivens happened is because there was a liberal majority who thought that, you know, sovereign power is something that like – there are consequences if you violate it. And it's been weakened because conservative judges don't agree with that. Uh-huh. I mean, this is a very Trumpy case, yeah. too, in its way, right? I mean, I think if you would say, right, like, what are Donald Trump's core values, right? right that, like, we don't question the men with badges and guns, right. particularly when they're going after people with brown skin right. or, or foreigners, uh, is like, that's like what Donald Trump is interested in, right. in conservative politics. But I mean, I, I did think your your point at the top of the show that like, what is the conservative movement interested in right. in Donald Trump, right? Like, is this Supreme Court majority? Right. And and so some of this, like, they, there's a case uh, I think that you wrote about that sort of like touches on the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, yeah. right? In a, in, a, in a kind of weird way. But yeah. like, th- this is the sort of thing that like, you would never in a million years hear Donald Trump do a speech saying, a big problem in America is that it's too hard for big banks to rip off 
like average right. people with with their lending. But we know like Republicans like they they really 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 didn't want a yeah. consumer financial protection bureau. Uh, they fought quite hard about it legislatively, and now there's a there's a case with like with real implications for right. that. So like taking a step back here, yeah. like the conservative legal movement, like when I talk to Federalist Society people, like they have their own like increasingly coherent ideology. Mm-hmm. That often like coalesces around issues that you're just like, wow, why do you care so much about uh-huh. this? And so one of the things that they've sort of coalesced around is this idea of the unitary executive. Right. Um, the unitary executive is simply the idea that all executive power, whatever that is, vested is vested in the president and only the president. And so if you have an agency like the CFPB or, you know, the, the FCC or the FEC or something like that, where the president cannot fire the heads of the agency, that violates the principle of the unitary executive because those agencies are executive agencies and they have to ultimately be responsible to the president. Yeah, I want to be really clear about this because I saw the movie Vice, mm-hmm. which I think contains a very misleading explanation of this principle. <laughs> and I think probably more people have seen that movie than uh, necessarily listen to legal affairs right. podcasts. But right, see, it's about this. It sounds so weird right. and pointless. But you go all the way back to the progressive era, right? Yeah. There was this thought that, like, because it used to be the federal government just like didn't regulate the economy right. that much, and then there was the well, the federal government should regulate right. the economy. So then there was a question like, well, how should we regulate the economy? And the view was, and this is an American thing that yeah. distinguishes us from some other countries, was, look, Congress is not going to write out, like, every day of the week, like, some new little rules about things. There are going to have to be agencies that are right. empowered by Congress to sort of monitor the situation, write rules, adjudicate right. cases. I don't know if that was the right call or not, but, like, that is the direction right. that they took, right? And so then- when they thought that, the idea was, well, okay, it's not going to just be Congress is saying whatever the fuck the president says, right. that's what's going to happen, right? They wanted a process that had objective rules right. and real enforceability that was you know, not just like what side of the bed did the president wake up on, uh, but that was flexible right. and adaptable. And so what they came up with in a lot of cases was these independent commissions, right? So there's one that doesn't exist anymore, the Interstate Commerce Commission. Yeah. But there's FTC, FCC. I mean, they say C in them a right. lot. Um, and they they will have typically five commissioners, right? right? Um, they're appointed by the president, but like they're supposed to be bipartisan. And the idea is that this then becomes a freestanding Thing, right. Right. That like it governs its sphere of activity within the bounds of the law, but the ability to kind of muck around. And and the idea of the unitary executive is that Article 2 says the executive power of the United States shall be vested in a president right. or something, and, which to me sounds like throat clearing. Uh, but they have this very specific view that that means you can't have an independent agency whose director can't be fired by the president. So I want to put a pin in what you yeah. said about agencies doing regulation right. because that's also super important okay. and is also like a big deal with the Supreme Court. Right. But so, the, yeah, this unitary executive idea, like what they object to is the idea that there are agencies that aren't under the control of the president. Right. And like – 
There's like groups that don't like the the CFPB who are sort of throwing a Hail Mary here saying that because the CFPB has this director that can't be fired except for cause by the president, right. we can get the director struck down and then try to convince the court that the proper remedy is to throw out the entire CFPB. Sure. I don't think that's likely to happen. And the reason I don't think that's un- that's likely to happen is because Justice Kavanaugh heard a case like this when he was a lower court judge and he said that that's not the proper remedy. Right. But setting that aside, right. like, that's that's like the, the loopy dream scenario right. is your law says the commissioner can only be fired for cause. Uh, that's unconstitutional. Therefore, the whole thing goes away. Exactly. But that would be crazy. That would. Yeah. And like even like maybe you get Gorsuch or Thomas to say that I don't see like the crazy outcome as, as particularly likely. here. But you could agree that it was unconstitutional to make the director independent. Exactly. And so like, yeah, the, the specific issue is can the president fight now right now the cfp director is a trump appointee so like the practical implications if the conservatives win this case is that president warren could fire that person on the first day right. and put in her her own because person because the, the carryover obama appointee richard cordray he resigned right. to run for governor of ohio and wound up not right not, so, so so this so this wound up not arising in the sort of specific context right. where progressives would be mad about Trump firing the CFPB director. Right. Right. Yeah. So like th- this is like I mean, like I said, like federal society folks care about this so much as an independent issue uh-huh. that like they want the CFPB independent director status struck down, even if in the short term it benefits liberals. Yeah. So like it really is a, an important issue to them. But like the stakes here are much bigger, like really like the, the, the areas where this matters. So first of all, the Federal Reserve uh-huh. functions as an, as an independent agency. And so if the you know, right now the president can only fire Federal Reserve governors for cause. And if this case goes, you know, if if. The courts buy the unitary executive theory. That would mean Trump could say, well, I don't like the fact that interest rates are so high, so I'm going to fire you all and bring in my hacks. Right. You know, it would mean that he could say to the FCC, you know, CNN ran this this segment that I don't like. I want you to find them. And if you don't find them, I'm going to fire you all and bring in my guys. Right. You know, you know, you think of a lot of agencies where this could happen. So, like, typically the agencies that are independent agencies, like, it's not done for arbitrary reasons. It was done because – like Congress thought there was a good reason why we don't want the president of the United States to be able to tinker around with the individual decisions of this agency. And if the unitary executive theory prevails, then it could lead to a lot of very sensitive areas that, you know, touch on, you know, what type of democracy we have, what type of information we have, whether the economy can have cocaine injected into it in order to <laughs> to reelect the president. But here, yeah. here's what I think is most sort of um, subtle but alarming about mm-hmm. this, right, which is that a president could try to overregulate with an agency that is under their thumb, right? right? They could say, all right, FTC, we're like, we're going after this company just because I right. don't like them. Um, and that would be an annoyance to the company. Nobody wants to do lawsuits. Uh, but if you are the subject of regulation, you do get to have your day in court, right. regardless of what the agency said. And if it's like President Warren is just like saying, oh, you have to have labor unions, like she'll just lose, right? Right. But if you're on the other side, right. right, if you just say, hey, buddy, I don't really want to see you bringing any regulatory right. actions or I'm going to fire you. Right. Just tell everyone, don't worry about it. There's no good remedy 
for that. Right. Right. Like if you if you curb independence in the direction of inaction. Yeah. There are some workarounds you right. can try. But it's not like I, the person who got screwed over by both like the bank and also the lack of energy in the regulatory system. Right. I can't be like oh, you should have been more yeah. proactive yeah. In, in looking for these things, right? Like either the agency, and you've always had this, right? I mean, there is right. inherently a partisan to and fro, but if you allow for it to just completely swing, yeah. right? There's a real asymmetry in that. It doesn't yes. mean half the time regulation will get more aggressive than it is now and half the time it'll get less. Right. It means half the time it'll get a lot less right. aggressive, and half the time it'll get maybe a little bit more aggressive. Yeah. And this is why I think there's – the Federalist Society types care so much about this is like – I mean these – like a lot of these folks are really fucking smart. Right. And like, you know, they understand that inaction is on their side, not just in this context. I mean I, I said I wanted to stick a pin in agency regulation. Uh -huh. So like – one of Gorsuch's big projects is like there's just a lot of laws which say instead of saying, OK, here's the rule for how you have to run your power plant. It says like here's a broad guideline for like how we want power plants to be run. And it's up to the EPA to fill in the uh -huh. details. So like, you know, for example, the Obama's clean power plant. Um, which was like his most aggressive attempt to fight climate change. Where that came from is the Clean Air Act said that plants has to use basically the best available technology that's reasonably cost effective um, in order to like reduce emissions. Mm -hmm. And the EPA has the power to determine what is the best available technology. And like you can sue if like, you know, the EPA comes up with something ridiculous, but the EPA has a lot of discretion. Right. And like and, the FCC statute, it it, it right. says something about like when companies are merging, like is it in the public interest? Right. Right. Like it's it's a broadly defined regulatory right. mandate. Right. So some of these are more specific. Some of these are less specific. And what Th I mean, Thomas has said that agencies shouldn't be able to do this at all. Mm -hmm. Gorsuch has said that, like, basically, the like the broader the delegation, the more suspect it is. And it looks like Gorsuch's view is going to prevail on this court. There was a, a dis an opinion last term which suggests that he now has a majority for his viewpoint. Um, and in a, in practice, what that means is that. They're going to hand down a vague standard, what Gorsuch has said is really vague, and the Supreme Court is just going to give itself a veto power over regulations. You know, if it likes the regulation, then uh -huh. it can, within this vague standard, come up with a reason to say, yeah, that can stick around. And if it doesn't like it, then it can strike it down. And with a Republican majority, that means it's going to strike down a lot of progressive regulations. Yeah. And yeah. I think this is something people need to understand. I right. think that most – I don't know about regular voters, but like people – consumers of right. takes understand at this point that the legislative aspirations of a hypothetical right. 2021 Democratic presidency are going to be limited. Yes. Right? That even very optimistically, we're talking about a Joe Manchin or a Kristen right. Sinema Senate, uh, more plausibly a Susan Collins right. Senate. Um, but there is now a lot of interest in, in expansive executive action. Right. Uh, but this stuff comes back to the court yeah. in the same kind of way. Yeah. And, and it does in such a political way. I, so like there's this case called Chevron. 
Mm-hmm. Um, Chevron came it was handed down the Reagan administration. And like Scalia's the biggest champion of Chevron for most of his career. Uh-huh. Chevron says that when agencies regulate, courts should apply an extraordinarily high level of deference to what the agency does right. in, in, in the, the regulation. And the, the context here was that like after a couple decades of like mostly progressive Congresses, right? Suddenly a much more conservative president was elected and the conservative court was like, well, we have to have a lot of deference. I I mean, like, I I mean, fairness, like Justice Stevens wrote Chevron. So, Uh like, I don't know that Chevron was written like by it was necessarily itself an act of conservative activism, but like. Republicans typically loved it because right. like Ronald Reagan, Cadell, right. the, the, the fetters were off. Right. The 12 right. years of Reagan Bush. Right. right. It, it was like the dead hand of right. the Watergate Congress was no longer going to bind. Yeah. Like a conservative yeah. president. And so like when I was in law school, like, I mean, I graduated in 2006. So this uh-huh. wasn't that long ago. When I was in law school, like what I was taught is that conservatives tend to really like deference to agencies. Read the Scalia opinion about how great deference is. And liberals tend to be like want at least a little less deference because like they want to be able to like sue the EPA so that the EPA has to regulate greenhouse gases and uh-huh. stuff like that. But like that was the equilibrium. And then Obama got into office and all of a sudden I like started covering Federal Society events and having spent my law school years hearing them talk about judicial restraint, judicial restraint, judicial restraint over and over again when George W. Bush was in power. Suddenly all they would talk about during the Obama years was limiting agency power, overruling Chevron, reinvigorating something called the non-delegation doctrine, which says that it's constitutionally forbidden for Congress to delegate power to agencies in these ways. And like Gorsuch, Kavanaugh both have really aggressive, um, like uh, really aggressive opinions restricting agency power. So like, you know, it's 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 hard to look at it and not just think it's politics all the way down uh-huh. because like, you know, when, you know, again, when Reagan was in power, deference was was, was the new hotness for, for, for these conservatives. And then all of a sudden, you know, they have realized now that Democrats are going to have to depend on federal agencies. You know, even though there's currently a Republican administration, these guys are smart. They know that malapportionment, me- malapportionment means that Republicans are probably going to control the Senate. Mm-hmm. And so if you take away executive the executive branch's power that means democrats are potentially left with nothing let's take a break talk about nothing hi we're visible we're the wireless company with nothing to hide seriously hidden fees we don't have them annual contracts not our thing great wireless on just one line now that's more like it get unlimited 5g data powered by verizon for just 25 dollars a month taxes and fees included that's right 25 a month every month Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just visible. Switch today at visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see visible.com. Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work. Questions including, what are we missing when we work remotely? Or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking? From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to The Future of Work, a Prop G Pod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the Prop G Pod wherever you get your podcasts. Obviously, like... 
Progressive's basic problem here is that there's all these conservatives on the Supreme Court, um, and you know they would they would like to do something about that. Right. Uh, but you know, I, I, a theme of your book that that I think is important is that there's a there's an institutional asymmetry yes. here, and that you know, with anything like in American politics, the pendulum swings. Uh, you 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 hope for the best uh, when, when you get it, but that there's a real difference in in the courts, yeah. right? That like a conservative court can knock out right. a bunch of sort of popular populist measures right. make it really hard to get them done again and and be very efficacious yeah. in that way whereas progressive courts I, I don't know i mean i think people hear a lot of stories yeah. about the Civil Rights Act right. and uh, about the civil rights movement and then Roe v. Wade and they know about gay marriage. And so they'd say, well, you know, if we if we just get some good justices in, like, you know, we're, we're going to want this judicial right. review, too. Yeah. So like what the scholarly literature says is like the court can basically say no to things. So like, I mean, if you think back to like the earliest 20th, early 20th century, a period called the Lochner era, the Supreme Court just basically struck struck down a ton of progressive labor regulations. They struck down the minimum wage. They struck down laws protecting the right to unionize. They struck down maximum hour laws, which is a huge deal because in that era, you're typically paid by the week. Uh -huh. And so like if you couldn't restrict the number of hours, then you could just constantly be working. And like those things stood for 30 years. I, right. I mean, there was a 30 or 40 year period where you just couldn't have very many progressive labor regulations because the Supreme Court kept saying no. Um, the other thing that the Supreme Court can do is that when it has public support behind it, it can sometimes accelerate progressive change. So like marriage equality is the example of this. Like the reason why the marriage equality decision is probably going to stand is because like the country was already moving in that direction and it continues to move in that direction right. post-Obergefell. But if there's resistance, the courts – I mean so the, the paradigmatic example of this is actually Brown v. Board of Education. Right. So from 1954 until when Brown was handed down until 10 years later, 1964, you had basically no progress on public school desegregation in the Deep South. Um, and there's lots of reasons for this. I mean one is the fact that like the nature of the courts is you have to have a plaintiff. Uh -huh. And if someone tried to be a plaintiff, then the Klan might lynch that person. Mm -hmm. So like terrorism was a really sure. effective method. Um, but like f the fact that there was a court decision just didn't do that much to desegregate schools in states that were determined not to be desegregated. When desegregation actually started taking root was after the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Congress stepped in. Congress said that it would not allow and then, and then the president, right? I mean, right. It's, it was a, it was like a, a Alvin Chang uh, for, right. for for our site has some good charts on this. Where you, where you can see that you know there were a few states right. that did desegregate. Yeah, the but they were like systems. Maryland. I, they yes, were like yeah. I mean, a, a couple border states. Yeah. And, and this is where it goes, right? Where like uh, similarly with 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 the uh, Obergefell and marriage, right. right? Is that like it's hard to get state legislatures to do things right. in America, even when public opinion is on your side. Right. And so, if the court knocks down a same-sex marriage ban, yeah. and so, so and it's not popular, yeah. Then okay, you you win, and and that's what yeah. happened in Maryland. That's what happened right. in the District of Columbia. Uh, but in the Deep South, there was no integration right. until you had until Congress passed laws that empowered the federal government right. to like make schools 
Yeah. Desegregate. Yeah, the, the Civil Rights Act of 1964 did two important things. One is that it allowed the federal government to sue in the name of the United States. So you didn't have to find like a black child who was willing to risk their life in right. order to sue. But then the, the other thing was that it said that the federal government could cut off federal education funds to schools if they remained segregated. And it was those two things, not Brown. Right. That 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 caused a spike in, in in public school integration, which unfortunately has since waned because the Supreme Court has weakened protections. Um, so, again, I mean, you see the same cycle there where the Supreme Court said we want to integrate the schools and it did very little. Then Congress stepped in and you saw an, a spike in integration. And then in a later series of cases, Milliken v. Bradley, uh, you know, and the Dow, the Board of Oklahoma v. Dow, the Supreme Court said, no, we, we actually want to roll back on desegregation. Uh-huh. And you've seen a decline in integration since right. then. And I mean, and, and I think you saw, right, I mean, there was a famous uh, case when George W. Bush was president yeah. where Massachusetts and some other more progressive states sued the EPA. Right. They said, you have to regulate right. greenhouse gases. And they won that case. Right. And, and that's good. But- it didn't generate regulation of greenhouse right. gases, right? It's like this is because this is part of the structural problem, right? right? Like if Congress had passed a law saying greenhouse gases are now regulated, right. the Supreme Court could have tossed it out. Right. And it would have been gone. But when there wasn't a law, just trying to make a politically hostile administration yeah. do greenhouse gas regulation, it didn't. It didn't accomplish anything. Right. There was like a hilarious thing where the, the the it was like the White House came up with the idea that if they didn't open the email that like said this right. rolling had happened, that well maybe they didn't know. Uh, but anyway, it's like to create a regulatory scheme, it takes work. Right. Right. Like you would like actual people in offices have to go. Go do it. Yeah. They and then they have to enforce it. And, and enforce it. Yeah. And the court couldn't make them. Right. What they did was they had a precedent that the Obama team right. had in hand, like from day one, so that they could say to everyone, okay, right. like let's get to work. So it wasn't nothing, but like it's not at all yeah. symmetrical to when the Supreme Court tosses out yeah. the clean power plan, it's just gone. So, so it's important to understand what courts do. Right. So what courts do is someone with a particular grievance comes to a court and says, like, this other person has violated the law in this way. And the court's job is to apply the law in individual cases. So what that means is that, like, if there's no law, the court's can't make it out of whole cloth. There's no regulation. They can't make it out of whole cloth. Like if, if you come to them and say, like, I want you to enforce this greenhouse gas regulation that doesn't exist, the courts could say, well, it doesn't exist. But if the courts don't want don't like the law, they can say, well, yeah, you want us to enforce it, but tough titties. Right. Yeah, yeah. Like, you know, we're, we're just not. And so, like, there's an inherent conservative bias in the courts because, like, they have a tremendous ability to say no to regulations, uh-huh. but, like, they don't actually have that much power to say yes to things. Right. And I, and I think another thing that, that you really saw with this is that, you know, the um, the, the Supreme Court, the, the Warren Court really made, I think, a substantial effort to make the criminal justice system more fair. Mm-hmm. You know, they issued right. a lot of famous rulings in this regard. And some of those rulings were, yeah. were rolled back later. But even despite them, yeah. right, like basic inequities in the criminal justice system, like 
rich right. people have good defense lawyers and low-income people have these very overworked yeah. uh, public defenders. And that some states, you know, in some states, like, they they give a damn a little bit right. about public defenders. And in other states, they don't. Right. And it's just like you could never – you could never fix or like maybe jurors will be racist. Right. Maybe cops have biases. Like you can't there – was, there was nothing they could do yeah. exactly. And, and I mean, yeah. You, and, and the thing is that criminal justice is actually one of the areas where courts have the most power. Right. Because every criminal case has to come through the court right. system. And even there, I mean, it's like – I don't want to say it hasn't mattered. Like, right. Like right. I mean like it is no longer a frequent proce- pr- process that like – Cops will bring a prisoner in and just torture the person until they confess. And like, thank you for Supreme Supreme Court for the fact that that doesn't happen all the time. But like there, the even in criminal justice, which is the area where like the courts are dominant, where like like you literally cannot do anything in the criminal justice space without at some point going to the judiciary. Even then, you're exactly right right, that like they've had their power is limited. And and what's really matters is like. Politics, right? Like right. in the in the 80s and 90s, like mass opinion was like very tough on crime. Right. And even liberal states were, you know, one thing Democrats would say in the 80s and 90s is as the political party more willing to raise taxes, right. we will build more prisons than the Republicans right. will, right? And public opinion and, and elite opinion too has shifted on these topics. So it like became a thing where one of the few possible areas of bipartisan cooperation right. in many states was Republicans wanted to reduce prison spending, yeah. right? And it's the exact same structure of right. conflict, but like when when crime was lower, when people are less worried about it, like big changes right. happen. And I mean, I don't know, like that's that's life. Like yeah. it it takes politics to make make big changes. So if I can, I guess, make text where I think has been the subtext of a lot of this is like, so I think that a lot, there's a lot of nostalgia for the Warren court amongst Democrats. There's a lot of Democrats who think that what we're about to live through with Gorsuch and Kavanaugh is the anomaly Mm -hmm. and that like we got to protect the court and we don't want to do things like, you know, whether it's court packing or whatever, because the real Supreme Court is what Earl Warren did. Right. And if you look at the long arc of the Supreme Court's history, it's Dred Scott, it's the Lochner era, it's Korematsu, you know, the Warren court was the anomaly. Uh-huh. And so, like, I mean, I've written my views on court packing and they're more nuanced than just do it. Uh-huh. But like if the courts go rogue, like, I mean, if, if the Supreme Court just becomes a wholly owned subsidiary of the Republican Party, you know, there are reasons why your first order tactic shouldn't be court packing. Uh-huh. But none of those reasons are, well, because courts are good for liberals. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, this is right. But I would say that. In some cases, you in some situations, you need to push back on specific things that happen. Right. But you don't want to undermine like the institution. Right. Because you're just hoping for change. But I think the the correct view of like strong judicial review is that it has not been a positive institution that right. like in the famous topic of civil rights, right? Congress in the 1870s passed civil rights right. legislation and the Supreme Court threw it out. Right. Yeah. And now the Supreme Court's big claim to fame was that they like brought it back 
right? And no, of course, of yeah. course. The history of Reconstruction and why it fell apart is, right. is like much more complicated than uh, some some legal documents. But like again, like that was not. It's a it's a fraudulent history of civil yeah. rights in the United States to make it out to be that like right. the guardians of the Constitution. Uh, rescued yeah. us from from the disaster of segregation. And one thing that's weird is to a certain extent, I think both parties don't really understand this yet. Because uh-huh. like, so one debate that's going on, like Bill Barr is very angry about um, nationwide injunctions. A nationwide injunction is when like a federal trial judge says, hey, there's this policy and I think it's illegal. So no, it can't be enforced anywhere. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And like, in the short term, like this is bad for Republicans because there's this one liberal court in San Francisco that like that like, you know, a lot of people are going to and they're getting orders striking down Trump policies. And so in the short term, like you get these opinions that suspend some, you know, really conservative immigration policy for a few months before the Supreme Court reinstates it. Right. But in the long term, I mean, look at the end of the Obama administration right. where like DAPA, the, you know, the the the, the program for the for undocumented parents of citizens. Right. They had some court in Texas. That yeah. Was, like, that yeah, was there in San Francisco. Right? Yeah. The, yeah. There's this guy in Texas. And there's another guy in Texas, who, the guy who threw out the entire Affordable Care Act, who was basically a rubber stamp for Republicans. He's a former Republican Senate staffer. His name's Reed O'Connor. And like they could just go to him and be like, hey, there's this thing we don't like and join it. And he's like, OK. Right. Um, actually, he did it and join all of Obamacare, but he struck it. But like, you know, he, he will give them the rulings that they want. And so... A, it's weird to me that Bill Barr, who was a smart guy, hasn't thought like, you know, like I could take the hit on a few nationwide injunctions right now because we're really going to want all these Republican judges we're putting in place to have that power when the other guys are in charge. Right. But also it's bizarre to me that Democrats and I mean, seriously, like I mean, if if like. Democratic members of Congress like Elena Kagan, if you're listening, you should really put this in the federal rules of civil procedure while you can. Uh-huh. Like Democrats should be going to Bill Barr and being like, you're right. Sure. We need to stop these nationwide injunctions because if like if they don't, five minutes after President Warren signs anything. Yeah. Like there's going to be a nationwide injunction against it. Right. No, yeah. no. And, you know, part of what I think is sort of scary about this vision, right, that you, you already see coming with with Trump a style of politics where Trump doesn't really talk about anything like in a concrete way in terms mm-hmm. of like the bulk of what the government does. Right. He's this like symbolic figure. Right. Right. And so he will like troll uh, liberals about hamburgers or, you you know, uh, national anthem stuff and and whatever. And it would be easy for a sort of casual consumer of political news to think that the government does not have a lot to do with how my day-to-day life as a humdrum middle-class American who doesn't like happen to have passionate feelings about like left-wing culture war concepts. Right. And, and that's not true, right? But part of why it's not true is that Trump is stocking the judiciary right. with people who have strong views right. about the plumbing of the regulatory state. Yeah. And if what they do is take those topics off the table, yeah. right, then politics becomes more and more like Trump 
symbolic yes. politics where like we can vanquish yeah. the symbol of Trump right. and like drive a stake yes. in it and say, this is not who we are as a yes. nation. And then President Beto is like, he's hugging asylum seekers instead right. of throwing them into a snake pit. And like, that's nice. Yeah. But like, A, it's a kind of a losing politics right. for progressives. Like Trump is so egregious that that he's unpopular. But right. like, you don't want to make everything in politics yeah. be about just like, like, culture war stuff but also it's not it's just like it's not true like the yeah. go- most of what the government does is like actually not about like who we are as a people right. quote unquote it's about like like <laughs> what legal rights we have yeah. so so two thoughts on that. i mean one is like yes i think like especially because congress is so dysfunctional and like the senate is so malapportioned that it's likely to stay dysfunctional like the Supreme Court is becoming the locus of policymaking, mm-hmm. like all that stuff I was talking about before about how the Supreme Court is going to strip away the executive branch's power to regulate. Like that's just aggrandizing power within the Supreme Court so that more and more policy decisions are going to be made by the one branch of government that is not elected. Uh, but the other thing that like really worries me in this space is like I think the common sense and it's not an irrational sense amongst most Democrats is that. Donald Trump Trump is kind of stupid Uh and his administration is kind of incompetent. Uh And like so like, yeah, it's bad, but like there are limits to what they're going to be able to do down the road because like they just don't know how this works. And I mean, Samuel Alito is an evil genius. Uh Like, I I mean, like, you know, Leonard Leo, the head or the the, not the head of the fellow side, but like the guy who's like involved in helping Trump pick his judges. Super smart. Like uh-huh. the the legal side of the Republican Party is some of the most brilliant thinkers that you will ever encounter in your life. They know where all the leverage points are. The reason they were willing to lash their star to Donald Trump is because they knew that if they gain this control over the courts, they know exactly what to do with it. And like and it's frightening because right. like, you know, I mean, I'll hear folks like, you know, there there have been a handful of Trump Trump judicial nominees who have gone down because they weren't competent. Uh-huh. And sometimes I'll hear like, you know, liberal activists like they want their talking point to be, oh, yeah, these guys are just not qualified. And there's no that is the worst thing that you can convey uh-huh. to people like the 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 average Trump judge is smarter than the average judge from any other president. Uh-huh, uh-huh. They know exactly what they're doing. They have a coherence to their ideology in a way that no other president set of judge set of judges are. And like, you know, in two years, if like Trump loses in a landslide and like is sitting in a prison cell somewhere, uh-huh. <laughs> you know, these guys are going to be, still be sticking around with just as much power and they are as smart as Trump is done. And the and the lesson of the the New Deal era to leave people with something right. is I think though that like like nobody will ever say this but like mass politics and mass opinion matters right. to judges right like FDR didn't actually do anything at the end of the day yeah. to like turn around the courts other than win elections yeah. and appoint some justices who he agreed with but he did like make this a topic. Right. Right. He wasn't just like, well, fair enough. No New Deal. Right. Yeah. No, I think that's right. Although I think there's a a second lesson from the New Deal, which is that what FDR was pushing was basically courts get out of this. Uh And like the doctrine that emerged was in a a case called Caroline Products, Uh which said that 
Um, in almost all cases, courts should assume the law is constitutional and do nothing about it. And then there's a handful of instances, you know, if it discriminates on the basis of race, if it like defies an, an explicit provision of the Constitution, if it messes with the electoral process itself, like there's a handful of instances where courts should stay in. But like the liberal position that, em that emerged out of the Roosevelt administration was we want the courts to do as little as possible. Right. And that was great uh -huh. if you're if you're a progressive. Like that is the best it's ever been. That consensus held from the Roosevelt administration until until the Obama administration. I mean, the Federalist Society was preaching this stuff when I was in law school in 2006. Right. And like if we could go back to that judicial restraint, it would be so much better for people on the left uh -huh. than like, you know, if you want to give more power to the courts, OK, fine. But look who's going to be wielding the power right now. All right. Well, with that, uh, thank you very much, Ian. Uh, this was really great. Uh, thanks, as always, to our sponsors and to our producer, Jeffrey Geld uh, and the Weeds. We'll be back on Tuesday. In U.S. working forests, or forest land carefully managed to provide a steady, renewable supply of wood for daily use, more than one billion trees are planted every year, and forestry experts protect and manage hundreds of millions of acres. Working forests have been sustainably managed for decades. How? It's simple. They plant more trees than they harvest. Learn more at workingforestsinitiative.com. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com.